Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, listeners. Kevin and I need your help. Yes, we need your help. Please, please, please. We need your stars. We need your reviews, you guys, on iTunes so we can start to climb those iTunes rating charts. It's simple. Open iTunes. Click on the iTunes store. Search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Then click on Ratings and Reviews under the Customer Reviews Click write a review, then let us know what you think from one to five stars. If you need some help, think of one star being Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the road company of the last five years, <laughs> and five stars being free front row tickets to Hamilton. <laughs> Although, when you think about it, I actually would give five stars to the road company of Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the last five years, because I think that would be uh, awesome. I would love to hear, can I hear moving too fast as Paul? <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the one I really want. She's a shakes the goddess. <laughs> Through Erica Schwartz and Danica Weiss and the Handelman twins. So there you go. You can also leave a comment if you like. That's it. That's your reviews. It. Send us Thank your you. reviews, friends. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. We're also excited to announce that you can now listen to us on Broadway Radio. A listener recently asked me if we still get starstruck. My answer is usually no. However, that is not at all applicable to today's guest because when I was growing up 3,000 miles away from Broadway in a town where nobody knew anything really about musicals, my mentor was a man who lived in New Jersey and educated me on musical theater histories through his articles in Theater Week, Playbill, and Theater Mania. Yeah, me too, Rob, me too. Uh, in addition to his articles, he literally wrote the book on Broadway. Uh, he's the author of such essential reads as, here we go, Let's Put On a Musical, Broadway Musicals, uh, The Biggest Hit and Biggest Flop of the Season, 1959 to 2009, Strippers, Showgirls, and Sharks, a very opinionated history of the Broadway musicals that did not win the Tony Award, Broadway MVPs, the most valuable players of, uh, from 1960 to 2010, and The Great Parade, Broadway's very astonishing, never-before-forgotten 1963-1964 season. 
He is an author. Isn't that amazing? I love it. <laughs> He's an, I'm exhausted listening to that. He is an author, a critic, a historian, and the ultimate walking Wikipedia of musical theater. It is our pleasure to introduce the one and only... Peter Felicia. Thank you, Peter, for coming. God love you. My God, what an introduction. God love you. <laughs> I don't know how much of it is true, but anyway. <laughs> no. We really are. I mean, we don't get starstruck, but I, I was very uh, yeah. nervous coming to meet you today yeah. because of the... You, when someone writes so much and you read so much of that person's words, you do feel an intimate relationship a little bit, even no, though I it's... You there. And uh, yeah, um, it, you can't shut me up. I mean, I, I, I write all the time, so uh, because musical theater is it for me, what yeah. can I tell you? Did you always write? I mean, you probably no, studied it. Thing. I mean, I, I fell into musical theater so bizarrely, but um, in high school, I was uh, known as this musical theater uh, maven and was somewhat respected for that because uh-huh. even though this was the 60s and all of my classmates were listening to the Beatles sing She Loves You, I was listening to the cast album of She Loves Me. <laughs> uh, but... There was a real respect. It was really quite odd um, because they felt that I had highbrow adult taste. You know, so, um, so I was really very much cherished as this uh, strange being, but not uh, strange in the worst sense of the word. Not bullied you know, or anything like that. Nothing like that, that whatsoever. Huh. And um, what happened was I, I went to college and I was walking up a stairway one day and coming down the stairway was a guy that I had known in high school. He said, I've just become editor of the school paper, and I know you love Broadway. Why don't you become a theater critic? And that's how it happened. Wow. I took that stairway, you know. <laughs> thank God he was coming down. Yeah, so. well, I, a little if-then for you right <laughs> there. <laughs> so going back, though, a step, um, what was the first cast recording you owned? Well, if you want to hear the story... Yes. Uh, yes. Got to hear the My <laughs> Fair Lady yes. Story Theater. I, yeah, right. You, you know, know the story. of course. But our <laughs> listeners, it would be nice okay, for them to Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> I was a rock and roll kid. Um, I'm the quintessential baby boomer. I was born literally nine months after World War II ended. Dad came home from the war. They wanted a baby. They are going right away. So June 46, I came along, and I really embraced the rock and roll. Um, in 1955 when um, Elvis Presley was hitting and I was crazy for him. But I love the novelty songs, songs like The Purple People Eater, Mm -hmm. uh, which I was savvy enough at that point, noticing that um, there was a lyric about the purple people uh, eating purple people. Uh, It wasn't that he was a a being that ate people and he was purple colored. No, 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 no. No, he only ate purple people, so he had nothing to worry about. So um, so I love that song quite a bit, and uh, all the novelty songs um, that really touched me. So anyway, uh, in 1960, for Christmas, I begged my parents to get me a tape recorder so that I wouldn't um, have to spend 89 cents on each record, uh, those little 45s with the big holes in mm-hmm. the middle. And they had relatives um, down the street uh, with whom they used to play cards, my parents, and um, I asked them if um, if I could tape their kids' records. I didn't dare ask the kid because he was a bit of a juvenile delinquent, but that's another story. So they said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And my parents gave me three rolls of tape, and if they'd given me two, I wouldn't be here today because the rock records filled two rolls of tape, and they were still playing cards, and I had one tape left, and gee, I mean, you know, I didn't know what to do, and so I went to the parents' records, and the first one was the soundtrack to Gigi, which I recognized the logo. It had played in downtown Boston, where I'm from, um, for two years. We didn't see the movie. Um, my, my father was a real rugged type with tattoos, a plumber. Oh, wow. uh, we didn't go to butch. Uh, we only went to butch movies. Oh. So, um, 
Um, and, you know, I mean, it was always Maverick was the big show on TV on Sunday nights. So we never saw Ed Sullivan, so I never saw any of those musical sequences. So anyway, I put on the, the uh, soundtrack of Shishi, and the overture was the most important sounding music I had ever heard in my life. I mean, I just couldn't believe how important it sounded. Mm-hmm. And the second song was Thank Heaven for Little Girls, which was a popular song on variety shows, which we used to have every night of the week in those days. And um, But the third song is the one that grabbed me. It's a bore in which Maurice Chevalier and Louis Jordan traded notes on life. And Louis Jordan, though he was a young man, was very old in spirit. And Maurice Chevalier, who was an old man, was very young in spirit. And they traded notes. And I just thought it was a very funny song. So after that one was over, I picked up the next one, which was the soundtrack to South Pacific. Again, I recognized the logo. It had played two years in downtown Boston at the Saxon Theater. We didn't see the movie, again, um, not for my parents. So um, I put that one on, and that one uh, really intoxicated me, too, especially, I have to admit, because it had the word damn in it. Um, Now, ain't that too damn bad for Bloody Mary? So, I mean, you know, know, I was that type of kid, so that was great for me. So... (laughs) So I'm really interested now. The next one was My Fair Lady, which I had heard of. Because um, it was something people talked about, but the movie hadn't yet come to Boston. So as a result, I put it on, and this was the funniest of all. I mean, Henry Higgins' songs. You know, and, you know really, it's very interesting now. I look back, and um, when I think of things like, why can't a woman be more like a man, and I'm an ordinary man. You know, my parents used to fight endlessly, and I mean, I really saw the, the conflicts that um, that were there in those songs in my parents' marriage. So, So this one I really related to. And, you know, my mother was... Um, a generous person, and she said, well, since you like this um, so much, we'll go to New York this summer and you can see it. Now, we had been to New York many times, starting in 1954, and so every time we would go, we would walk down Broadway and I would see that movies were playing that were not yet in Boston. So I was aware that movies came to New York, New York was the big city, and they didn't come to Boston for a long time. So I assumed uh, what we were talking about was the movie of My Fair Lady because, um, frankly, I just didn't know that they still put on plays. You know, think about it. I mean, once, once we had cars, nobody rode horses anymore. Once we had electricity, nobody used candles anymore. I figured once we had movies, they didn't do plays anymore. Why would they bother? I mean... So, I mean, that's the way it struck me. And so that Jan, uh, July, I'm sorry, July, when we went to New York, um, I expected I was going to see a movie. And um, it was really quite bizarre because my parent, my mother went to a ticket broker. The show was on Tufers by that time. It was five years old, but she went to a ticket broker. And she had to pay five ninety five for a ticket that was only four forty on the uh, face of the ticket. Right. Uh, Wednesday matinee. We went to the theater. She, it was too expensive for her to go. I mean, it was just one ticket, you know. So, um, wow. And the marquee says, Michael Allenson and Margaret Mo, Margot Moser and My Fair Lady. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. The album that I taped said Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews. But the night before, I'd been watching Jack Parr's show, The Tonight Show, and he had had on Trevor Howard, who was talking about his remake of Mutiny and the Bounty he was doing. And I thought, oh, see, see, New York is so far ahead of Boston. Already the remake of My Fair Lady is in New York, and we haven't even got the original yet. And I was very excited to see the remake, because to me, at the age of 15, remake meant new and improved. Yes, yeah, totally. We, though we learned later that was not the case. But anyway, so, um, so I go into the theater, 
and they hand me a cute little booklet, and um, and I'm used to this. And I also know that I have to sit in a certain seat. When my mother bought the seat, it was H19, and she said, you're going to sit in the 19th row. And I was very sad, because I, I like to sit close to the movies. But, you know, we used to have some movies in Boston, Cinerama specifically, if you know what that is, um, where you did have to sit in a certain seat, and that's all there was to it. Um, yeah, and um, so I, I knew that in a high-class city like New York, you'd have to sit in a certain seat. So, um, but the usher made a mistake and took me to the eighth row, not the nineteenth row, and I was thrilled. And I hoped I'd get away with it because I like to sit close to the movies. But then I'm hearing strange sounds in the front. You know, very strange. It sounds like music, but it isn't quite. Now I know it's musicians tuning up. And the playbill says understudies do not substitute unless. And I thought, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Uh, wait, are there going to be people up there? And I remember turning to the lady next to me who all these 55 years later I can still see in my mind she still had a veil on. I mean, a matinee lady. I mean, I don't know why it was still on. She was in the theater. And I was going to say, are there going to be real people up there? And I thought, oh, please, you know, I mean, you know, shut up. She's going to think you're a moron. Just wait. Wait, and, you know, at 2 o'clock it'll start. Well, then we had a power failure, and I was just so devastated because I knew they would give me my money back, and I'd never have the nerve to ask anybody if there was really uh, people going to be up there. Well, it wasn't a power failure. It was the house lights dimming, and um, I didn't get that. Now, younger people, and I tell the story to, always say, wait, 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 wait. When you, when you go to the movies... The lights are up when you walk in, and then they they dim when the movie starts. Yeah, not then. It was really interesting. Last night I was watching an old episode of I Love Lucy where she talks about Ricky taking it to the movies, and the movie starts at 7.22. And that's what used to happen in those days. There used to be a continuous loop, and you know you just walked in when you felt like it. There was no line, anything like that. It was a, a, a conventional thing that you would walk in the middle, you'd see the movie, when it started again, you'd say, oh, here's where we came in, and you'd leave. So that was a very common thing. So you know, movies were always dark, uh, the theaters, when you walked in. So this was a, a strange thing. Bum, 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 the curtain goes up, and I see what I now know to be a scrim. But it looked like a screen to me. There were all flowers painted around it, but there was a, an empty white space, and I thought, yeah, see, it is a screen. I was, How could I believe in these modern times of 1961 that they would be doing um, people on stage? Then the screen was lit from behind. It looked like real people. I saw an actor sway a little. You know, probably out late last night, you know. <laughs> um, and kaboom, you know, the, the scrim went up and my life has never been the same. Wow. True story. Every bit of it. That's magical. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's a great way to start. It really is. You know, I mean, uh, and uh, there's still part of me uh, who is that little boy who went to that show. Oh, yeah. And I'll never lose that kid. Oh, yeah. I never get tired of it. You know, I mean, um, I've been on a lot of committees and um, like Drama Desk and uh, Theater World and Lucille Hotel. And it's amazing to me how so many people say, oh, I'm so tired of going. Oh, I've been going three times this week. Yeah, I. When I was at the Star Ledger for one year, our theater critic, I'm sorry, our dance critic, Valerie Sudal, came up to me and said, you know, I know you started a year ago today. I said, Valerie, that's amazing. How do you remember? She said, well, uh, it was was my mother's birthday uh, last year. I was on the phone making arrangements to take her to dinner, and they say, get off the phone, meet the theater critic. So I know it's been a year. (laughs) So um, she said, are you going on vacation? Don't you have a week's vacation? I said, yeah, 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 next week. Where are you going, she said, with the Caribbean and Europe in her voice. And I said, Louisville. Louisville. Oh, 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 friends, relatives, a wedding. I understand. 
I said, no, no, no. I've never been to Actors Theater of Louisville. I'm very embarrassed by it. It's only an hour from Cincinnati. I'm going to Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. The play they say is going to win a Pulitzer Prize. And funny thing, Carol Channing's going to be there doing Hello, Dolly. So she said, wait, 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 wait. You mean to tell me on your vacation <laughs> you're going to do the same thing you do every day of the year? And I said, well, Valerie, I guess I must be in the right job because, mm-hmm. you know, anybody who wants to spend his vacation doing what he does the rest of the year must really love his job. I hate going. I've gone to Aruba. I've gone to Barbados. I, you, you can't even find a community theater production of Dolly there. I mean, it's just impossible. Why bother? You know, I mean, so uh, you know, I, I just, I, it really is a goal to see theater here, there, and everywhere. I mean, I, I've seen theater in 43 states and 14 foreign countries, and I ain't done yet. Oh, man. That's right. Yeah. How, how many nights a year would you say you're, you spend in the theater? Well, ironically enough, here we are, and it's uh, May 30th, and I use the traditional season of um, June 1st to May 31st as mm-hmm. the season. So tomorrow night it will be 369. So it's more than one a day. Oh, my God. So, and I'm not, I'm not out of gas. I'm really not. Because I bet it. you when those house lights dim, it's always just it always is. I, I still get nervous. I still get excited, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, you know, and the thing is, too, that... Um, these things have become more interesting to me as time goes on because I think, okay, I see them as puzzles to be solved. You know, uh, would I do something different? I don't, I'm not saying I have the, all the answers, but there are times when I really say, hmm, how about this instead of that? Mm-hmm. And what if they, and all that kind of stuff. And to be perfectly frank, um, some people have listened and taken mm-hmm. advice and um, have changed things in shows as a result of uh, suggestions I've made. That happens about once every fifty times, but nevertheless, it has <laughs> happened. So, uh, so yeah. So, I so I'm, I still get off of it for that reason too. Yeah. You know, I'm just interested in the process and seeing all that goes with yeah. it. Did you ever want to be an actor? Did you ever want to be on stage? No, I have no talent. That's why I had to be a critic. <laughs> uh, truer words have never been spoken. No, you know, it's funny. Um, a few years ago in New Jersey, um, they thought it would be fun to have the theater critic. Um, be the narrator of Into the Woods. So oh. they asked me if I'd do it. It was going to be a reading. And I thought, oh, sure, you know, we'll rehearse on maybe Wednesday and Thursday and we'll you know, do it Friday, Saturday. So we rehearsed for a month and boy, we needed it, believe me. And this is not a reflection on the actors. What I mean is, it's hard to do these shows. You know, Sondheim, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, you've done song time. I don't have to tell you. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, and here's the thing, you know, I mean, as the narrator, I was fine. But when I had to play the mysterious man, I really felt like I was chasing a butterfly. I was trying to grab a butterfly and I could never grab it. I can't get into anybody's character. I, I think I'm a decent MC and I, I do it a lot. Mm. But as a character, I just cannot get into it. Can't do it. I wish I could. I'm impressed that you played both roles. I am too. (laughs) I thought it was just going to be the narrator. (laughs) Funny. Do you play any instruments? Um, I used to play the guitar when I was a rock and roll kid. Oh yeah, we were rock and roll. But then uh, you know, once show music came in, and my parents didn't want um, to, they couldn't lug a piano where we were. So, and you know, it's a good thing though. I I I think all the time, if I had ever learned to play the piano. I would have bored so many people singing show tunes day, night. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wouldn't stop, you know. So um, um, I used to teach high school. One of my great thrills was one time I went um, into a rehearsal room uh, because I was working with the drama club, and here's Mickey Reed. That's a woman. Um, all of a sudden, she sits down. She plays God Bless the Human Elbow from Ben Franklin in Paris. And I mean, <laughs> who expects that? You know what I mean? And she, I've never forgot that. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was such a bizarre so specific, thing for a girl. Yeah. yeah, you know, so... Um, but I love that. That's how you can find a good friend, right? Yeah, the other one. That's I think when we when Kevin and I were first teaching together, uh, we did not know each other. We were doing an auditions class, and I had suggested this to him. Oh, you should do this from Brownstone. And Kevin's 
face perked up and goes, you know Brownstone? And I think that's our friendship. Oh, and I said, like, you should do He Had Refinement from A Tree Grows in yes, Brooklyn. And, and so, you were like, what? <laughs> so it's those little you obscure know. ones that... I just named uh, He Had Refinement as a song I think people should, uh, women should do as an audition song. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. I think you know, that. People always talk about Adelaide Lament being the, the funniest song in um, musical theater, but I, yep. I vote for He Had Refinement. Um, but again, you know, I'm not a George Abbott fan, and um, yeah. it's amazing to me that when I saw Tree Grows in Brooklyn at Encores for the first time, um, in the first act, the dialogue explains that the man that she admires so much did get married, and that kills the joke. And he had refinement when um, you know he never told me that he had another wife. You know, I'm, whoa, you know that would tear down the house. But he he castrated the joke by putting it earlier um, in the show, and I just thought it was the strangest thing. But. Yeah, He Had Refinement is a great song, and I really am uh, proud of both of you for knowing that. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing um, um, Peter's Hasty Pudding show, uh, the guy who wrote Brownstone, and, um, back in the 60s, and I could tell he was a great composer then. It's really uh, too bad that um, he went into plastics as the graduate yeah. <laughs> um, urged uh, people to do. I guess he took that advice. But, oh, was he a great composer. He's good, yeah. really good. You know, his score for... Um, uh, um, all the Queen's men about Catherine the Great um, was was just sensational. So um, you know, I've never heard that. that. No, it was a hasty pudding show, you know, at, yeah. at Harvard oh, University. Yeah, yeah. So um, huh. I might have a CD I can burn for you. I might. I might appreciate oh, that very okay, much. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love shelter. Well, we interviewed Joanna Merlin, and she had it sitting on her desk. <laughs> And I said, what, what's that shelter there? What is that? And she said, oh, you, you want it? You want to have a copy? And I said, would I? Yes, of course yes, I please. do. It's funny because I remember uh, only a 45 came out of it back in the mm -hmm. 70s. They had recorded the entire cast album, but only a 45. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was playing it. And at that time, I had uh, a three-year-old child. Uh, that's how old Jason was at the time. And he loved the song. And, you know, he used to sing along with it. And I thought, there aren't many three-year-olds in this country who are singing along from a song from <laughs> Shelter. They're just done. Um, this Fact. Is, yeah. So, um, <laughs> by the way, he's deeply ashamed of me now. I mean, he's a rock music kid. And just, oh, is he? You know, just... Well, just he did so take, deeply ashamed. He did take it after you a little bit, then you know. Well, you know, I mean, the, th the irony is, I mean, like he always says about my girlfriend, she was at Woodstock, and he admires that. Nice. You know, I was, at, I was at the tryout of Jimmy when Woodstock was happening. You know, so um. I just felt I was looking through my records and I found Jimmy actually, and I didn't even know I had it. Oh yeah, you know, I'll, to it. I'll never forget this. Uh, Jimmy opened in October of '69. This is a musical about Jimmy Walker, the mayor, mm -hmm. and far less successful than Fiorello, who was a much more lovable mm -hmm. character. But anyway. Uh, we came to town, my wife and I, and we're desperately looking for something. This was the year I learned you don't look for tickets between Christmas and New Year's. I, I didn't know that up until that point. Even though I was reading Variety, I didn't put two and two together. I, you know, so we came up, and we're going here, there, and everywhere, and uh, we can't get into Coco, and we can't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, we're going to have to go to Jimmy. And I'm, I'm in line. There's no half price booth at this point. Uh, I'm in line, and it's like I'm going to my execution. I'm, it's like a firing squad because this, this show is just been hanging on since October. The gross is a lousy, but Jack Warner, the producer, believes in it. It's going to be here forever. And I'm just just so discouraged I have to see it. And then from behind me, I hear a person say, they're closing Saturday. And then I had to see it. <laughs> I had to. It was amazing that that was the value system, but that's that's precisely what happened. So, uh, so I love yes, that. It's wild. How did you get into teaching? 
Uh, my parents insisted. Um, they were they were very dogmatic in that way. Um, the, uh, my parents were extraordinarily old when I was born, not by contemporary standards. My father was forty and my mother thirty seven. Mm. They had grown up during the depression, and you know, teaching uh, was. Um, Tenure after three years and all that kind of stuff, you know. So that's uh, they 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 pushed me into it, and um, they hated my interest in Broadway. In fact, if somebody says, "What color was your kitchen in 1963?" the obvious answer is, "Who remembers?" It was yellow because I still remember begging my mother, begging, begging her to give me five dollars so I could go see Tavarich um, at uh, the Colonial Theater, and um, and she put out the $5 bill and then pulled it back and said, this is getting to be a very bad habit, you know. So, wow. you know, all my friends are, you know, drinking six-packs, but mine was the habit that was bad. So um, so anyway, uh, it, it was something that they really wanted me to do, and uh, they were very, very powerful people um, in their own ways. And uh, as a result, I just did what I was told. So um, so that's what I did. But I did work with the drama club, uh, which was fun, and I uh, wrote plays for the drama club, mm. um, two of which were published and still get done around the country, believe hey, it or that's not. that's great. What, what are the names of those? Uh, one was Games, and it was about the fact that, um, have you ever noticed the kids' games are pretty... Um, pretty uh, mean, you know, you're it, you're out of it, out goes Y-O-U, all that kind yeah. of stuff. So it was, it was about bullying uh, long before that became a thing. And the other one, um, of which I'm deeply ashamed, was um, one, it was called Danish Morden, and it was um, Billy Bigelow, I'm sorry, uh, the star- starkeeper says to uh, Shakespeare, you can go back for a day, what will you do? And he said, well, you know, I think I'd write soap opera. So it was Hamlet as a soap opera. Terrible play. But it uh, still gets done. I shouldn't say that because it still gets done. Amazing. You know, it's a wonderful play. You know, so, Adam's <laughs> Gift, that's another thing. Uh, Adam's <laughs> Gift is a new one. What is ha- you know, when you're a theater critic, you, uh, you see Christmas Carol a lot in December. Yeah. Um, you know, you see a one-man show, you see a musical, you see a straight play version, and eventually you see an update. And uh, when I saw one that involved Eleonora Scrooge um, and her assistant, Roberta Cratchit, and uh, they have a kid named Timmy, um, you know, I said, shit, how come nobody's saying... Um, hey, your name is Scrooge, your name is Cratchit, you know, just like Dickens, nobody's saying that. And I thought, gee, is there any way you could update Christmas Carol where the person who's the Scrooge character has never heard of Christmas Carol? Well, then you'd have to be illiterate. Well, and it started me off on a play. Now, it's funny, um, it was done in um, Iowa mm-hmm. this past December, and... Um, so I go there, and we're going to have a talk back, and I'm sitting uh, next to the director, and we're talking, and I don't know the act- I didn't notice the actors who I just saw coming out and sitting on a bench. He said, why don't you introduce yourself? And the first woman says, hi, I'm Emma Van Huysen, and I played Lisa. The second woman says, hi, I'm Donna Van Huysen, and I played Lisa. Wait, what happened? What happened was the actress who was playing Lisa couldn't do it. He called up two identical twins. <laughs> Said, "We need you in a hurry. You take scene one, two, and three. You take no four, five, way. and six. Yeah, really. You know. I mean, at the next night when I saw it, oh yeah, she's about a few pounds thinner. Oh yeah, she has a little higher voice. Is that amazing? Isn't it? I've never heard like of that happening. Right I know. I love that. So, uh, so yeah, Adam skips. I think if we live long enough, we'll see productions because oh, it great. is a different take on a Christmas Carol. Yeah. But what happens in mine is by Scrooge character. He's not called Scrooge. Um, He's illiterate, and the reason he becomes a good character is because the Tiny Tim character 
teaches him about the arts, teaches him to read, teaches him to love the movies, plays, books, and that's what makes him a good person. That's fantastic. Because I believe that. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. we have all the answers, the arts. I mean, if only the politicians would listen. They don't believe us. They don't think it's important. They think it's important to buy decals for the football helmet team. You know, but I mean, really, if they would give us the money, we could make so many kids um, into wonderful citizens, kids who just are looking for direction so much. Yesterday was a party, ironically enough, with a woman and... Um, uh, my girlfriend said, gee, you know, how, how did she get into theater? And I said, she literally was on the street with her friends doing drugs when Joe Papp's mobile theater unit came by and did Two Gentlemen of Verona, the musical, and that changed her life. And now she is an executive with the Howard Gilman Foundation. I mean, you know, and that's what did it. You know, if anybody thinks that all those trucks running around the city with Joe Papp didn't amount to anything, yes, indeed, they did. That's at least one life that was saved, and I bet there were plenty of others. Oh, yeah. so, I mean, we really do. I mean, and kids do better in school when they get involved with theater. I mean, it's, it's just good all around. I, and as I always say to kids, um, they say the number one fear in life is speaking in front of people. Look at that. You've already conquered that. Yeah. As a result, there's nothing else to be afraid of. <laughs> You're all set. <laughs> so I think that's really quite wonderful. It really, it, it means so much. And it's so bad that so many people don't really realize that we have all the secrets. Yeah. We do. That's really lovely. Oh, that's, yeah. I feel energized. Oh, I, Good. I feel, I feel, yeah, I got goosebumps. Good, yeah. I got goosebumps. <laughs> like, preach, Peter, preach. <laughs> yes. Now, you were, you were teaching in the Boston area? Yes, Arlington. Um, it's, uh, there's Boston, Cambridge, and then Arlington. So, you were very lucky, though, because you were so close to the Colonial Theater, where most musicals were going to try out before they went to Broadway, so. The first musical I ever saw try out was, um, I Can Get It For You Wholesale. And I came out raving about this Barbara Streisand. Um, I, I told every kid in the street that this Barbara Streisand was going to be a star. And when that cast album came out, they had to hear this song, Miss Marmelstein. Oh and 14 kids were piled into my room about six weeks later to hear the album. And I'm telling you, nine seconds into the song, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. They didn't get the Jewish humor. I mean, this is a very Roman Catholic community. They didn't get it. And I was the laughing stock of the neighborhood. I mean, for, for, for years I would hear, you know, oh, you like that, that stupid. Um. And the thing is, you know, I mean, when I went to Madison Square Garden and saw 18,000 people there paying $350 a ticket, which was a lot of money in those days, uh, and uh, people waiting to get in and all that, I, I thought, Jeff Bates, Dickie Tompkins, Donnie Mahoney, Cosmo Nardella, you know, you thought I was wrong. Here I am, you know, it was, it was a year and a half before I knew how to pronounce the last name until she was on Judy Garland's show. But she became an obsession with me because it started me on um, realizing that I could really spot young talent. Um, if I may blow my own horn on this, I really do believe I'm good Go at that. It. And um, I'll never forget the time that my... Um, uh, the woman who had become my wife, uh, she was living in Baltimore, and I called her up and said, um, listen, I want you to come to town, to Boston this weekend, because the new Burt Backrack musical, Promises, Promises, is going to be here, and I want you to see this actress. She's really good. She's at Harvard, and I think she's really going to amount to something. Her name is Susan Channing. So we went, and we saw Promises, Promises in the afternoon, and my wife loved the show, except she didn't like the voice of Jill O'Hara. She thought she was terrible. But, um, and then we went that night to see Susan Channing um, in a, um, a play, a new version of Every Man, that you know, way back when play. So anyway, uh, time went on, and Susan Channing changed her first name to Stockard. And um, she got into Two Gentlemen of Verona, and we went to see her in the chorus. And then, uh, as it turned out, she would play the lead in the uh, touring company. 
So um, they were coming to Baltimore. And it was funny. You know, whenever there was a tryout in Baltimore, like applause or no, 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 net, um, or a road company I wanted to see, I'd always say, let's visit your parents. They want to see the baby, you know? <laughs> and, um, and that's what would happen. Well, anyway, for this one, you know, I mean, it was really um, just terrible uh, because uh, she, my wife was working so hard that week and said, I don't think we can go, Lily. Dr. Channing, we've got to see her in a lead. And we, um, she finally acceded, and we, I had to drive down to Baltimore at speeds unknown on the Indianapolis Speedway, I'm telling you, to get there in time, to drop off the baby, to get to the theater just in time, and get in there and find that the role usually played by Stockard Channing would be played by Jill O'Hara. Oh. <laughs> that was the beginning of the end, I'm telling you. <laughs> True story. The, begin- the look that she gave me can only be surpassed by the first performance of The Wiz in Baltimore, which we were at, uh, which was just a disaster. And, you know, my friends all uh, were saying to me, you've got to bring your tape recorder down to The Wiz because we're never going to get a recording of this. Clearly, it's going to close in Baltimore. So we are depending on you, bring that tape recorder and get that recording. Now, this is, you know, 1975, and, you know, the, the um, Two Gents uh, was 1972. And, you know, by that point, we had lovely ladies, kind gentlemen, and Ari and Comedy, which closed in Boston. I mean, Comedy. you know, yeah. my, my wife really suffered through a lot of cry for us all. I mean, which was oh called God. Who to Love in Boston. <laughs> I mean, it was really, you know, she was really having a tough time. So by 1975, um, you know, it was uh, really rough. And we were at the very first performance of The Wiz, and the director, Gilbert Moses, came out and said, uh, um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, 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 listen, it's been rough. We, we, we're up somebody's been sick we didn't tech until this afternoon you know. and I thought oh no another disaster oh god but I've got to stay here and tape it there's no way out um, and we were in the very last occupied row we were in row P and we were on the aisle with the last people to buy seats so there was nobody around us at all everybody was in front of us and that turns out to be an important part of the story. But anyway, um, the moment the first act ended, the moment it ended, I said, got to go to the men's room. And I just zoomed into the men's room, locked myself in a stall, knowing this was one place that she could not come and get me and say, we're leaving. You know, so, um, and I'm telling you, when the lights flickered and I went back out and I'm looking through a little slip in the door, you know, so the lights, waiting for the lights to go down so I can zip down to row P and sit in that aisle. Uh, seat, and the scene that started the second act, and it's still there, but it's much longer and interminable, but I have to tape the show, and my wife just bolts up straight up, stands up, and just lies down on the floor, uh, like in (laughs) 102, 3, and 4, you know, and the people in 102, 3, and 4, they could feel that somebody was behind them for a second, wait a minute, what happened, you know, and they're turning around, they're looking, and I'm I'm telling you, you I felt so embarrassed finally, I said, okay, let's go, and all my friends were so upset because we'd never get a recording of The Wiz, you know, so, um, except we did, (laughs) and then some. They turned it around, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they really did. did. That was was perhaps the most dramatic track. You know, everybody talks about applause being in such terrible shape in Baltimore, and I don't think it was. I thought it was really good shape. I did not see Penny Fuller do it. I saw Diane McAfee, Mm. and I'm still wondering if at the curtain call, when she sort of upstaged Lauren Bacall's curtain call a little bit, was that planned because of Eve Harrington? You know, I don't know to this day, but I do wonder if indeed that was something that was staged that way or if she made the mistake, but it wasn't long thereafter that Diane McAfee no longer uh, was in applause. Wow. Um, So, uh, but... uh, 
one trial I didn't see in Baltimore that my wife did, which is kind of interesting, was A Mother's Kisses, which uh, Beatrice mm. Arthur was in. Oh. And it took place uh, both in New York apartment and uh, a camp uh, where her son went. Unfortunately, as my wife reported it, um, the camp set just wouldn't change in one, uh, enough uh, for the apartment so that Beatrice Arthur had to play the, the apartment scene with a big, enormous tree in the middle of the room that just would not leave, you know. So uh, <laughs> so that uh, that was a problem. But uh, I'm sorry I didn't get down there for that, you know. So no. uh, um, go ahead. I was going to say, but you did get to go to the first performance ever of Company. Yes, yes. Um, it, so uh, that was that was really something. Um, and I've often told this story, but Dean Jones, when he was singing Happily Ever After, was um, very upset. You could tell his eyes widened that the audience was not going along with this song that said Happily Ever After. A marriage was happily ever, living happily, happily ever after in hell. Um, that they weren't going. See, the Boston audience was, after all, uh, very upscale, very Brahmin, um, old world, and uh, this new style of musical was not what they wanted oh. at all, at all. Um, they had a wonderful time at I Do, I Do um, four years earlier, uh, but they weren't taking to company at all. And his eyes widened, and I'm telling you, when I heard he was leaving the show, I knew that he had made that decision during that song. And about 30 years later, I'm asked to go to the Alabama Stage and Screen Hall of Fame. Yes, there is such a so thing. Specific. And uh, he was being inducted because uh, he's from Alabama. And uh, I said, why'd you leave company? And he said, well, I was doing the song Happily Ever After. You never heard of it. And um, uh, yeah, they, I just thought, why do you hate me so much? And I knew I had to leave. And I said, I was there and I saw it in your eyes. Wow. By the way, for the record, um, another hundred people was in the second act um, uh, during uh, that performance. I think it was only the only performance that happened. But, I never uh, knew that. The, play, I, the playbill does reflect that, too. Oh, wow. So, yeah. do, you, do you keep all your playbills? Yeah. Um, sometimes I do wind up losing them or forgetting them, but, I mean, the ones that, that make it into my apartment are still there, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was so sad because um, recently um, I was doing some research, and I had the... Um, Playbill to Holly Go Lightly, oh. which was the original title of Breakfast at Tiffany's, yeah. which did play Boston. And, you know, it was so interesting because for years I remembered the score so well because people kept saying to me, well, tell us about it because, you know, this was a legendary disaster. It didn't mm -hmm. even open in New York. And I would replicate the songs, you know, so vividly that they stayed in my mind. Um, and, you know, I, I put it down the counter after doing research, and there was a tiny bit of water in the counter. So after 40-odd years, it got a little water damaged. I was so upset, even though uh, it wasn't a good-looking playbill. I don't know if you know about this, but the, sometimes they didn't want to spend the money for a picture or a logo, and they used to put, like, a, a soft-focused traffic mm -hmm. on um, the cover, and that's what huh. the Holly Golightly in Boston was. Wow. In Philadelphia, they had a picture of Mary Tyler and uh, Mary Tyler Moore and Richard Chamberlain. By the way, I'll never forget the night I was in Angus, um, McAdoo, yeah. and um, there, was, um, there was a tremendous party, and, I mean, we were all squeezing and trying to move, and I turned around, and I was face-to-face -face with Mary Tyler Moore, who had just done the same thing. She just squeezed around, and we are almost nose-to-nose, -nose, and all I could think of was saying, I saw Holly go lightly, and she said, "Did you?" <laughs> <laughs> 
and I'm telling you, it was almost as if she spit out the words, you know. So it was the worst musical I'd ever seen up till that time. Believe wow. me, it's been eclipsed thousands of times. Oh, but up till that point, it was the worst one I had ever seen. And that recording, they did, they, you know, they did yeah. But what was interesting about the recording is that you can listen to two different versions of the show on the recording, yes. right? They're like, it's kind of like Choose Your Own Adventure. You want the Edward Albee <laughs> one, or do you... <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, it sure was. Recording does that, it sure but I didn't was. know that it was. It played so poorly. That oh, it, it really, really did. You know, I mean, um, such good bass material. I mean, come on. Yeah, you know, I mean, everybody. A lot of people do say they don't think it would make a good musical, but I see no reason why. Um, you know, the best musicals are about big characters and or big events, and yeah. Holly Golightly is a big character. I mean, yeah. I still remember. When I was in high school, uh, longingly across the street, I was looking at the marquee of the Regent Theater uh, where Breakfast at Tiffany was playing. And I said, oh, I really want to see it. Uh -uh." And something happened. I remember they let us out of school early, so I was able to go. But I was so confused when I heard that um, when it was revealed, Buddy Epson, I don't know if you remember this in the movie, but Buddy Epson comes to to get her, that she's really Lulu May, uh, this this hick girl from that he married when she was underage and she's a mother of children and she just completely left and reinvented herself and something like this had never occurred to me i'd never seen anything like it and i mean wow it was such an adult thing and what was i i was about 15 years old i mean it really threw me for a loop mm. so um so it was a very important property to me and you know as a big fan of the dick van dyke show i was really looking forward to this one and um it was really um quite humiliating under the circumstances humiliating is the only word I, I, I must ask you, what has eclipsed Breakfast at Tiffany's or Holly Golightly for you? Are you able to say the worst thing you've ever saw? You're so positive. Yeah, you, yeah. You find well, so one, much joy in everything. One night, I was oh, January night, I was just walking home. I live on, on 56th Street uh, near 8th Avenue. I was walking down 8th Avenue, and um, even though the marquee was dark at the Neil Simon Theater, and the plastics were still up for Kenny Loggins' Celebrate Me Home. There were a whole lot of people underneath the marquee, uh, and, and the, the lights were there. So um, I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? So I just walked, and um, I decided to walk in, and uh, there was the ticket taker. And I just walked past him. He said, hey! I said, yeah. He said, you got a ticket? And as if it was the strangest question in the world, I said, you need one? Yeah, you need one. What are you talking about? You need one. Of course you need a ticket. So I said, fine. And I went to the box office. I gave my name, and they weren't checking. The guy pulled out a wad of tickets, you know, that was so long, and just gave me one. And suddenly I'm going in to see a show, and I have no idea what I'm going to see. I've never had this experience. It's so bizarre. They give me a playbill, and it's bisected. There are two titles on the playbill. So now we've narrowed it down to two. It's either going to be The Return of Nimrod or Senator Joe. So, well, it turned out to be Senator Joe. And I think the scene where um, you actually were in Joe McCarthy, or Senator Joe McCarthy, the, um, the terrible witch hunter in the 50s, um, the scene where you, that was set in his stomach, <coughs> I'm telling you, I can still see the look of that, those backdrops with the blood, you know, oh. congealed and all that kind of stuff. Um, and a character named Fatty Deposits did a dance in his stomach. <laughs> All of, like <laughs> All of this is true. All of this is true. 
So I think that's the nadir, actually. I mean, of course, you know, there are times when you go here, there, and everywhere to see um, productions um, that, I mean, uh, inevitably, um, if you watch America's Funniest Home Videos, you'll eventually see a montage of Peter Pan's gone wrong. Right. Oh, yes. Or Superman's gone wrong where they flash, you know, flying into walls and what have you. Um, not counting things like that. Um, in terms of real... Uh, what's supposed to be artistry? Right. I think I think Senator Joe um, was the nadir. So, <laughs> and you know, um, I wrote in my book that the marquee was not up, and so many people have sent me uh, pictures of the marquee being up because it was up on the other side. But I came from the Eighth Avenue. If you had come up from Broadway, oh. you would have seen it. Oh. So they only did one side of it. So, uh, but I didn't know that. So, um, but <laughs> Senator Joe, I think, and you know, ironically enough, I later met the actor who played Senator Joe who also played Mr. McAfee in Bye Bye Birdie in the Tommy Toon production that went out in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And um, I went to see the show in Philadelphia, and there was a power failure while he was singing Kids. And I said, you know, I was there the day of the power failure. He said, you know, honest to God, I really felt that I had died. You know, there I was singing Kids, and suddenly everything, you know, the lights, it was totally black, and I thought... I just had a heart attack and died. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I think that's what happened. You know, and luckily that isn't what happened. But I mean, you know, so. Uh, um, but I do remember him fondly. Uh, he, JD something, I think it was. Uh... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. J.P. Doherty. Good for you. J.P. Doherty. He did Les Mis right before I was on the Les Mis tour. Yeah, he was the Tenardier forever. Yeah. I can see him in that role. Yeah. The first show I ever saw at the, at the Neil Simon when it was the album was it was the second Broadway show I ever saw, and that was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Now it opened May eighth, nineteen sixty two, and I was there August first. And you know, my memory of shows from back then are so much better than now because they were events in those days. Yeah. I counted them the days like a kid till Christmas. And I'm telling you, I maintain that as of August 1st, 1962, Zero Mostel was not fooling around yet, that he really played the show as what well. On August 2nd, he might have, you know, really <laughs> done something terrible, but I guarantee you that he really did the script as was wow. on uh, August 1st, and it was just a tremendous experience. It's the second greatest performance I've ever seen an actor given a musical. First is William Daniels in 1776, oh, and third is Robert Lindsay and Me and My Girl. Oh, yeah. I, I was reading an interview with you about maybe from 2001, where you had said that, and I'm wondering, since 2001, have you added any more names to that list? Well, um, nothing comes offhand, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to mention a very obscure thing, um, because um, ever since I was a kid, I gave out my own awards, not that anybody got any certificates or trophies, just you know, what I thought were the best of the season, and... Um, 
And I was really uh, thinking long and hard after I went back to Bright Star, was Carmen Cusack the best um, I've seen this season? Because I thought she was really, really good. But I'm still going to go with this little girl. I don't know if you know the show Merman's Apprentice. Um, uh, do you know about it? We interviewed uh, yes. Jim Boshu. Uh, no, uh, no, Stephen Cole. Cole. Stephen Cole. Cole. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a terrific show. And I'm, this little girl, Elizabeth Tita, who's the daughter of Lara Tita, who was in On Your Toes, um, gave such a great performance. I just can't take that away. Oh, award away from her. My friend David Wolf, by the way, uh, God rest his soul, uh, named the awards because uh, I had pointed out that in the musical Quamina, oh, uh, the I 1960 that record. Yeah. Uh, the capital original cast album, Quamina was actually the name um, that the guy was born with, but when he went to England, uh, he didn't want to be African anymore. He wanted to really assimilate and be British, so he chose the name Peter. So that's why uh, my friend David Wolf named my own personal awards the Kwaminas, because my name is Peter. So <laughs> anyway, not everybody gets a Kwamina, though many more that. get Kwaminations. <laughs> so, so, so that happens. So. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, so I don't know, you know, I, I don't know if anybody uh, in the last uh, in, uh, century, in this century, has um, cracked the list. Um, but uh, but certainly, uh, I've seen a lot of memorable performances over the years that that should be um, mentioned on the list. I, you know, I, in terms of plays, um, Charles Dutton and the piano uh, lesson was one that I thought was really great. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last, uh, that seems recent. I mean, of course, it's not. But uh, it's amazing how quickly the time goes by. I mean, it's it's, it's astonishing to me that you know something like Ragtime is already eighteen. Years old, it's crazy. Yeah, you know. So, I mean, people agree on so little. They don't agree on politics, religion, food, movies. But every adult agrees. Time goes fast. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's that's why you got to see these things when they're up. You know, I mean, if you want to be a musical, I'm sorry, a movie um, expert. You could do it in a year. You know, I mean, you, you can see everything. You could rent. You, friends will give you uh, their videos, what have you. You can uh, go to museums. You can do whatever you. You could really do it. Yeah. But you know, for for theater, you got to be there. You know, you and. Um, when when uh, young people say, "Oh, you're so old," I, I say, "I wish I were ten, twenty years older." I do. I mean, I because the things I missed, you know, mm-hmm. I, start, I would have loved to seen those shows in the '40s and the '50s, you know, yeah. but gone forever, you know. And God bless cast albums, you know. I mean, because yeah. and I became an inveterate cast album collector. And again, with my parents who were so down on this, I can't tell you how many times I actually had to wear the cast album under my shirt while walking in, hoping they wouldn't notice, you know, another record. <laughs> 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 you know, so, oh, they were horrible about it. You know, and I still remember the time my father heard Carol Channing say, March, 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 one too many times in um, the Motherhood song and Hello, Dolly, and wanted to tip over the um, record player, but my mother did stop him. I mean, she didn't want that on her floor. Wow. To, she'd have to pick up all the mess. It had nothing to do with the record or the record player. It had to do with the mess that it would make. So, um, so yeah, it was really uh, very hard um, growing up with people who just had no appreciation yeah. for this whatsoever. Ever. And and you know they resented it too because yeah uh, they felt it was a little high class and it was a little above them you know they they didn't dare walk into these uh, Shuba Colonial or Wilbur theaters uh, they, that struck them for high class people and they didn't feel they were high class enough so in a way they felt I was putting on airs so mm-hmm. that was uh, one reason they discouraged me too now did the love of baseball balance that out a little bit for you. Ironically enough, after seeing My Fair Lady, um, I met my father and we went to Yankee Stadium and saw Roger Maris hit two home runs in the year that he broke the home run record of 61 um, wow. records uh, of home runs. 
Um, I used to be a big baseball fan, and I had a goal of seeing every team play in its own stadium. And I only had one left in 1994, and that was Cincinnati. And I was going to go. I had I had all my reservations. Everything, all my bags were packed. I'm ready to go. And um, and there was a strike. And what was really interesting was that. Um, at that time, when I was reviewing in New Jersey, the New Jersey Shakespeare Festival was uh, asking the state for some money to um, to build their theater, and they got it, and they couldn't believe how happy they were to get this money from the state. And all I could think of was, um, if you offered these athletes millions of dollars, they'd be insulted. You know that you know here's this theater trying to make a go of it, while athletes are getting so much money. And um, so I got off the. Um, the baseball carousel at that point. Um, if somebody had ever told me that I wouldn't know anything about baseball today, I would be really surprised, but I really don't. I have no idea who's in first place, and I just can't support it anymore. It's just it's just not a good thing to support because I really do feel it's working against us. We need money for the arts, and too much of it is going into sports. So, um, so I, I'm what just a- picking my jaw off the floor. That's just Why? incredible. Just because, That's because the, the, the very, I mean, it's, oh, it's, yeah, it's important. You know, I, we, we, we really have to educate educate people that this is a wonderful thing for kids to do, that they turn out to be better kids, they get off the streets, mm-hmm. um, they learn teamwork. Yeah, I'll never yeah. forget this. I went to see um, a, a, a high school production of Annie, and um, I was asked to go because uh, uh, somebody's uh, kid was in it. And at the end, I, I was about to go backstage. It was just after the show ended. I was about to go backstage, and um, what had happened was this very, very, very... Uh, convention, by conventional standards, unattractive girl who had played Miss Hannigan, very overweight, um, again, not a pretty girl by any means, and there was Grace Farrell, a beautiful girl, beautiful, and there they were hugging and jumping up and down because they had just shared this experience that it had gone over so well, and believe me, if it weren't for this show, they would not be friends in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that pretty girl would have nothing to do with this. But she yeah. had, now here she saw this girl be so wonderful as Miss yeah. Hannigan. She saw this girl be so wonderful as Grace Farrell. A better story. I was doing a book on baseball, and I was coming back, and I was driving through Albany. And there are big, big um, um, billboards saying, 8 p.m., Washington Square Park, The Wiz. Well, as I mentioned, I don't like The Wiz. But, gee, you know, it's almost 8 o'clock, and there's the sign for Washington. Well, what the hell, I'm here. So I walk in. And um, there's an empty seat right in the first row, which is great. I love first row. So I sit there, and the show hasn't started yet. And to the, uh, to the right of me is a young black couple with a baby in a stroller. And both of them have their arms crossed. Yeah, and I know what happened. You know, this is the, the wife is saying to the husband, you know, I want to go see the show. I ain't going to see no show. You're going. It's free. I'm not going. Yes, you are going. You know, and they fought and fought, and so there they are. To the left of me, the entire row is filled with very, 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 very old people who are virtually asleep. And you can tell this is one of those, they bust in a community um, Mm -hmm. center, um, uh, old age home, something like that. Okay, the show starts. And the black guy can't believe that this isn't, you know, uh, ding dong, the witch is dead. and, And he's saying, this music's all right. You know, and he's really excited, you know, at, at the sound that really speaks to him. Meanwhile, the woman to the left of me hasn't thought about The Wizard of Oz since 1939, and she's saying, oh, the scarecrow, that's right, the Tin Man. Well, anyway, you know, there's some people who do this, and if you do it, it's fine. I'm not 
complaining. I don't do it. But there are some people who, when a laugh line comes, they turn to the person they came with and share the laugh. You know, they look at each other. Yes. Okay. So um, the woman was looking at me, but I don't find the whiz funny, so I'm not laughing. <laughs> but the black guy is finding it funny, and of course he can't share it with the wife because, you know, she didn't, he didn't want to come in the first place. Now he's having a wonderful time, and she's still furious because he's having a wonderful time, and she ru- he ruined her good time. So anyway, in front of me, these two faces are meeting. This old white woman smiling like crazy, this young black man smiling like crazy, and they're right in front of me, and I start crying because I am so moved by this because you know and I know that if they were walking down the street approaching each other, she would avoid him because she be petrified and you know that's true or at least she'd be wary so here it was i brought people together people from different walks of life different ages different races and it brought them together and that's why we have to do more of this that's why theater is so important it really is it's wonderful amen jesus (laughs) when did you uh, begin your relationship with the uh the drama desk association (laughs) yeah um uh, back in um 91 um uh, I, I started uh, meeting um, friends who were with the drama desk, and um, and they asked me to get involved as secretary. And that's a tough job, mm. you know. The other jobs are easier because secretary, you had to send out all the mail, you had to lick the stamps. They didn't have even stamps that you know you mm. could press apply in those days. So I had to lick the stamps, and I had to mail the envelopes, and I had to send them out. But I don't know. Have you ever seen the um, the movie It Should Happen to You with Judy Holliday and? Um, it's oh, it's a wonderful movie. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. The one I'm thinking of is the Solid Gold Cadillac. Have you ever seen that? I've seen Solid Gold Cadillac. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, Solid Gold Cadillac is about a woman who. Uh, by the way, I recommend it should happen to yeah. you too. But anyway, make a great musical. Anyway, um, so uh, the Solid Gold Cadillac um, is about a woman who has ten shares in a company, and she keeps on going to stockholders' meetings, and they get so frustrated with her they give her a job just to deal. You get her out of the picture, you know, you deal with people who write letters to the company. Well, nobody's writing letters, so she starts writing letters to the to the people and saying, how are you, you know, that type of thing. And eventually, uh, people like her so much that they vote for her to take over the company, and she does. So um, I decided, you know, if I'm secretary, I might as well write cute little notes to people and, you know, that type of thing. And I got to know everybody, and a few years later, they made me president. So, uh, you know, so it worked there, too. Um, I did it for four years, and it was, I'll have to to admit that uh, one of the things is when, when you're president, you have a board. There are you know eight people who come to meetings, and you have to be fair about this. You know, people have to voice their opinions because if they don't, they feel like they're not doing their job. Mm-hmm. So people have to say, no, 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 I don't agree with that. And it was it was getting to be a bit of a pain. And then the Theater World Awards, um, John Willis, which was a one man band at the time, um, he was um, he felt he was getting too old to to do it, so he asked me to take over. And I did, and I thought, this is great, because, you know, it's a one-man band. So being president is nice, but being king really hits the spot. So, um, so, but, you know, I mean, as time has gone on, we have a board now, too. So, I mean, it's, it, it's all the same. But, um, yeah. but it, it, those were good days with um, um, the uh, drama desk. And uh, now I'm back on the nominating committee, but uh, I'll let Charles Wright be the president. He does it very well, <laughs> very oh, yeah, well true. indeed. And- Oh, oh, sorry. I was going to say, how did you get from Boston to New Jersey? When did that move happen? Well, what actually happened was um, 
My wife, um, in 77, after seeing too many bad shows and other problems, too, um, <laughs> decided to dump me. She left me for a man um, who, by the way, turned out to be a transvestite. And I find it very interesting that of the two husbands, the one who loves Broadway musicals turned out to be the more masculine of the two. <laughs> but anyway... Um, when that happened, I thought, I'm just going to uh, seek my fortune and go to New York and see what happens. And, uh, and it took a long time for anything nice to happen uh, until I was walking oh, really? down. Yeah, 10 years. I was walking down the street uh, 10 years after I got here, and I saw volume one, number one of Theater Week on the stand. And I went to my uh, girlfriend's house. She's still my girlfriend uh, to huh. this day. And I said, I just saw this magazine called Theater Week, and I'm going to call them tomorrow, and I'm going to write for it. And, um, you know, if you come to my house, you will see a million scripts and you'll see the best plays and all that. If you go to my girlfriend's house, you will see books on the shelves like um, How to Make a Million by Tuesday. She's very into money. And uh, uh, this is not a criticism. I mean, she really does what she does very well. She's a literary agent and she's very successful. Mm. But anyway, she said to me, no, 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 no. don't write for Theater Week. They're not going to pay you much money. It's not going to lead to anything. Call up the Times and get a couple of assignments and they will happily give you assignments. I said, yes, they will, twice a year. But Theater Week week will indeed um, be every week and that way I can really establish myself and eventually I'll get a real job and that's exactly what happened uh, some years later um, the Star Ledger in New Jersey um, needed a theater critic for New Jersey and what was really great is my positive attitude about reviewing was one that they liked mm -hmm. um, because they wanted the arts to grow in New Jersey I can't tell you, I'm very influenced by Walter Kerr mm -hmm. Walter Kerr once wrote yeah. um, a, a, a sentence I'll never forget he says when I read what I wrote the night before, when I'm sitting at breakfast in the morning and reading it, I wish the show were as good as I made it sound. And I thought, yes, of course, because wow. we go all the time, all the time. And as a result of going all the time, we get jaded, we get used to things, we don't find things funny, I rarely laugh. You know, I mean, the thing is, you know, that's, that's what happens, we get used to it. Um, but the League of American Theaters says that a heavy theater goer goes four times a year. That's heavy. Four? Four, yeah. Oh. I bet it's three now, you know, with prices wow. going skyrocketing. Yeah. You know, so um, the point is they have different value systems than we do. So I, I, what I like to be is an audience matchmaker. When I see a show, I say, okay, who will enjoy this? Yeah. Who would be good for this? Um, years ago, I went to Teaneck, New Jersey to see a trial of a musical that uh, didn't ring my chimes at all. It wasn't terrible. I don't mean that. But it wasn't for me. Uh, however... I could see it was from the audience. I could see the audience really, really liked it. And I even wrote in the review the next day, the audience uh, members were throwing their heads back in laughter so much that today they're going to have to be fitted with whiplash collars. So, and the next day, the artistic director of the theater called me. I answered the phone, Peter Felicia. You didn't like it, did you? And I said, no, Jim, I didn't. He said, I could tell. I could tell because, you know, you were concentrating on the audience and all that. He said, but thank you, thank you, thank you. We're faxing out your review. That's how long ago this was. And we've already got people saying, oh, it sounds good, you know, so on and so forth. They came out. They moved it to New York. The thing ran 12 years. I love you. You're perfect. Don't change. And obviously there was an audience for this show. And I want people to go to theater that pleases them yeah. because I truly believe, it was true in my case, that if you get them used to going through the doors, they will come back. And then when they come back, what's really good is their taste will um, become more and more rarefied. I mean, I still remember when I was 15 and heard that um, Our Town was the greatest play in, um, in American theater. And I went to Harvard Square, 
And I still to this day, when I passed by this point, when I was on the bus, I looked up and said, this play is terrible. What are they talking about? This is the great American play. Seven years later, I was the first day of school teaching. I passed out the textbooks. Our town was in it. You know, there was nothing to do. There was 45 minutes to kill. The kids were all in their seats. I took attendance. What else is there to do? All right, let's read the play. I'm thinking it's terrible, but, you know, I mean, all right, let's... Wow, it really got good in seven years. He must have done a rewrite from what I had written, uh, read because, I mean, it was just so good now, you know? So, so you know, I remember walking out of the first production of Three Sisters I ever saw saying, this is terrible, and now it's my favorite foreign play. So, you know, get people used to walking through the doors. That's an important thing. Let them have a good time. What's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. There's a the young critic who um, wrote a review of one of the Christmas musicals that was here some years ago. It, I don't remember if it was Christmas Story or Elf or Grinch or it was one other at that time too. And he wrote it as a um, letter to Santa Claus. Dear Santa, would you stop bringing these Christmas shows to town? I'm tired of them. And I said to him, you may be tired of them, but you get in free and you see them all. What you should be doing is telling the audience which of the four is the best, the they should be going to. Yeah. That's what you should be doing. It's not about you, it's about the reader. Yeah. Now, John Simon and I have really um, tackled on this, you know, and um, because he really believes it's all about saying what's great in art and all that. I think that's good for textbooks. I think that's very good for university studies. But when you're reviewing in a newspaper, you are essentially a consumer advocate, and that's what I really want to do. I want to steer people to the shows I know they're going to like. How do you navigate being a journalist and then being a critic? of the theater, you know, because it's sort mm. of two sides. Yeah, I know. You know? Uh, and, and that's, uh, you have to navigate that. I mean, Yeah, and, and I, I feel I really do. There, yeah, there oh, are, I think so. I, I, there are, sure, I can be mean like anybody else, and um, but I love being constructive. For example, um, today on Broadway Select, where I review every Monday, um, I do an open letter to um, Stephen, is his name Levinson? I think it is. I forget already. But the guy who wrote the book for uh, Dear Evan Hansen, and um, and I told him what I thought was wrong with the show, but constructively. I said, to be perfectly frank, I'll, I'll, I'll go into it very quickly, but what had happened was this is a show about a boy who has committed suicide, and the parents of the boy who committed suicide think, uh, for good reason, that um, a young man was his best friend. I, why that happened is another story, but I won't go into it. But anyway, so the, he becomes a surrogate son, and um, and he doesn't want to tell them that he barely knew the boy at all, and they weren't friends. He doesn't want to break their uh, bubble and hurt them any more than he needs to, so he pretends he's uh, the best friend. But here's the thing. I'm sorry to say that I've known three parents, sets of parents over the years whose kids have committed suicide, and... What doesn't happen in the show that has to happen is they're not asking questions about what happened. If you think this boy is the best friend, you'd say to him, what was he like that day? What happened? Was he depressed? Was there a girl that dumped him? Um, Did he not get a job he expected to? You were with him. You were your friend. Did he talk about this for weeks? Mm -hmm. None of those questions are asked as of now in um, Dear Evan Hansen. And I wish they would be. And so I, I, these are suggestions that I make that I think are good ones. As I say, Jules Pfeiffer, the playwright, always says, the only suggestions I ever take are the ones that make me slap myself, uh, my head on the, my forehead and say, ah, ah, of course, of course. And if this does that for you, of course, use them. If it doesn't, okay, fine. You know, I'm just casting my three electoral votes. Yeah. But <laughs> under the circumstances, you know, I... I I love to at least try to solve problems. Um, I, I have to say that if I see a show 
and I think it has problems, and I cannot solve them, at least, and who says I'm right, but nevertheless, things that make sense to me, I am much easier on the show than if I say, well, why didn't you know? All right, School of Rock. Okay, here we are, School of Rock. Yeah. He goes, this is in the movie too now, he goes into the classroom, he says, we're going to learn rock music, and they're playing rock music loud, 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 and it takes a long time in the movie and in the musical too for somebody to come down the hall and say, what's going on here? What's the problem with having him show up the first day and have the principal say, oh, Mr. Schneebly, we feel terrible. A water main broke in your classroom. We're going to have to put you downstairs. I feel terrible. It's all cinder blocks. There are no windows, but what could we do? And that way nobody would hear anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's such a simple solution to be. Of course, I know it's so easy to fix anybody else's show, but the fact remains that, you know, there's a solution. So when there's a solution, I like to make them. You know, it's not just to keep saying, oh, it's terrible. That's no good. That doesn't help anybody. No. You know, I mean, nobody sets out to write a bad show. Everybody thinks they're doing the best they can. And I do know that when you keep watching a show over and over and over again, you, you get blinded. You know, suddenly um, things look um, much better to you because you're just used to seeing them and you don't see the flaws. And so it's easy to miss, you know. So, um, and I fully understand people who say, I don't read reviews. I, I do understand that. Um, but for those who do um, read me, um, they may very well get advice whether they like it or not. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah. And also, speaking of advice, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the books that you've written. And the first one I'd like to start with is Let's Put on a Musical. What was the inspiration for writing that book? Ironically enough, um, Frank Roberts, uh, who taught at Arlington High and was the director there, um, had seen a book that had been come out many years earlier. Um, and it was a little dry and a little textbooky. but he said, you should do this. And um, I thought, okay, well, maybe... Um, so, as I say, my girlfriend's a literary agent, and, and so I said, I have this idea. And she said, well, you know, I'll pitch it. So anyway, she was having lunch with an editor, and um, as it turned out, she mentioned this book, and the editor went crazy for it, because when she was in college, she was a musical theater major. You know, so it was just one of those lucky things, wow. you know, and um, and apparently didn't um, star in shows because she mentioned in applause she was the girl in backstage babble the opening number that goes yeah. and that so that's not a big part so I mean, <laughs> but so now we understand why she became an editor but she said oh yeah that's great I'll buy that and so you know that's how that happened and it's um, it's in it's been published three different times in three different ways with a, a rewrite um, there's a second edition that came out some years ago and if we live long enough there, uh, there'll probably be a third but um, I hope so yeah thank you that's yeah. nice you know new musicals come along <laughs> you know, it's very hard to. They said you have to add seventy shows uh, for the second edition. You have to take out seventy, and I found it so hard to do that. And uh, my buddy Ken Bloom, uh, who's a musical theater historian, who um, co-wrote the uh, Broadway musical The Hundred and One Greatest, uh, uh, in addition to many, many, many other books, um, said, "Give me that list," you know, and boom, 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 boom and he was right. He, 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 he eliminated 70, no problem, and he was absolutely right, you know, so, so God bless Ken Bloom, who really is um, a, a smart man when it comes oh, yeah. to this stuff. For our readers who are unfamiliar, would you tell us a little bit about what the book is about? Because it should belong on the desk of every artistic director, high school drama teacher. Um, It's simply a guide um, to community um, high school theater, um, and even professional theater if you want it to be, um, just 
saying the pros and cons of doing any musical. I mean, I, uh, not that you really, really, really need a bicycle with no pedals if you're going to do Ben Franklin in Paris, but for the record, that's in the show. What can I tell you? So it lists the props, the costumes, um, the assets, the liabilities. What was really funny was, you know, I got the four catalogs from the major houses, MTI, Samuel French, um, uh, R&H, and Tams Whitmark. And, um, and I was looking, at that time I was going through and making the list, and Godspell wasn't in any of them, which was really kind of interesting. So anyway, I was walking past, um, I, w- I remember I was under the Winter Garden Marquee and coming down the street with Steve Schwartz, who I know a bit, and um, I said, listen, I'm doing this book about you know, community theater, and the first thing he said, which was really nice, was, I hope you'll put working in it. Oh. And I said to him, ironically enough, Working was the one I submitted as the prototype because the thing with working is there are so many things you can do with it. For one thing, for advertising in your playbill, go and get the people who are in these occupations and have them put in ads in the program. Also, maybe you can get the actual people in your town who work in these occupations to do the show for you. Maybe you know you can get a teacher who can do the teacher's song or uh, yeah, that type of thing. So it was so great to say, look, your working is actually the one that yeah. sold the book, you know, um, and uh, and that was really great. But it was also nice to hear him, uh, Stephen Schwartz, who was really quite wonderful about viewing all his shows as his children, and um, he doesn't really play favorites with them, you know, that he. That he really cared about working, getting out there. You know. By the way, the answer to the thing was they they did their own company. They figured um, it was called Theater Maximus. They didn't use any of the four companies to uh, license Godspell. Though since then it has become part of MTI, okay. mm. so now you can get it there. Though I think you can still rent it from Theater Maximus too. It's your choice, <laughs> but uh, MTI does have it. And uh, what a great company MTI is. I do a column for them every Friday. Mm. And um, they are just so wonderful. And I, I have to say, the people who um, deal with uh, these um, amateur licensings tell me that uh, dealing with MTI is um, is the, is the best of the experiences. I'm not going to name names, but when I was writing. Um, let's put on a musical, and I asked my readers, you know, experiences you've had with different companies. One said. I don't know why they look for all the ex-Nazis in Argentina when they're all at, and they named the company that uh, I won't name here. Uh-huh. You know, so um, so I guess people have had unpleasant experiences there. So, um, and I won't be the slightest bit surprised if our listeners know exactly what company <laughs> I'm talking about. <laughs> I think we all do. Yep. Um, so okay, so buy the book. We'll put a link up to it yeah. on our website as well. And then there's uh, Broadway musicals, the biggest hit and the biggest flop. Of the season from fifty nine to two thousand and nine, what was the inspiration behind that one? I, I I don't quite know, but I do remember exactly when that happened in my apartment. I could, you know, it was funny. I thought I thought it was just a, such a good idea to go um, in each direction. You know, um, the, yeah. the the comparison seemed to me so apt. And of course, so many times the biggest flop of the season was supposed to be the biggest hit of the season. You know, I um, one of my major experiences was uh, being at the very first preview and at the closing night of Merrily We Roll Along. It was so amazing because when that curtain went up on that first preview, um, you may recall that it then was set at a graduation. The kids were all in graduation mm-hmm. gowns, yep. and the looks on their faces were so cocky. You know, there they were. You know, hey, Steve and Hal, who just did Sweeney Todd, wanted me. All right, I'll stay for it for a little while, but you know, Hollywood will call and all that kind of stuff. Well, they went through a torturous preview, and so that was October 8th. November 28th, I went back to see it for the second time. It's closing night. The curtain goes up. 
Same kids in graduation robes, but their faces were shell-shocked. I mean, what they had been through, and now what they'd been bragging about to their friends for a year was suddenly over, and Monday was unemployment. And you don't get that at the movies. You have to mm-hmm. see that in real life. You know, the contrast was just so remarkably different. So, um, and that was supposed to be the big hit of the season. Everybody expected major things from the new Sondheim Prince musical, especially since we had heard it would be a musical comedy and commercial, you know, rather than um, the arcane. Mm-hmm. The two previously had been terribly arcane. Sweeney Todd was arcane. Pacific Overages was even more arcane. So here it was. They were going to do this slam bang, happy-go-lucky musical comedy, and it didn't turn out to be that way at all. So um, that that was one that was supposed to be the big hit of the season, wasn't? It, it's it's just so interesting to see how many surprises do happen. Shows mm. that come out of nowhere that you don't expect anything from. I will tell you that in 1965, when I was 19 years old, I I met a young man who was only a year older who was already investing in Broadway shows. And I said, oh, oh, I got to do this. He said, all right, well, the next one I'm doing is called The Small World of Charity, and it has Gwen Verdon, and it has Bob Fosse and Cy Coleman and Dorothy Fields. Uh, it looks like Bob Fosse's writing the book. Then he called me and said, no, 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 Neil Simon's going to write the book. So I said, yes, I will put in my money. So uh, he said, they will not send us a script. They will not send us a score. We're too small potatoes for that. But if we, if we want to invest at face value, um, we can do that. I said, absolutely. So we invested in the show. Okay. So that's Sweet Charity. Now, the next show these same producers are doing, uh, the script came to us because the, we said, come on. You know, I mean, we've invested now. We should hear a script or score for the next one. He said, all right, we'll send you a script. So the script came from My Best Girl, as Mame was called then. And, um, and we were reading the script. And here's the interesting thing, and here's what I learned the hard way. I did not know how to read a musical script. I did take scripts out of the library and used to play them with the cast album and move the needle along, mm-hmm. and that's one thing. But when you're reading a script and you don't know the score, and you see you coax the blues right on the horn, mame, da da mame, da da mame, it looks lousy. You know, and I mean, uh, so we turned it down. And I'm telling you, man, <laughs> on April 29th, 1966, when I went to the Schubert Theater and oh. saw that tryout and saw that script on stage... Oh. But I also realized what a terrible director I was. Mine was so phony and melodramatic, the production I had in my head. I was ashamed of myself. It was a real education. All right, but that summer, in comes the script to Welcome to Berlin. And I'm reading, and I see Beetle-Deedle-Dee, two ladies, Beetle-Deedle-Dee, two ladies, Beetle... And I wasn't worried. You know, I understood that, you know, that as a song it would play better when you had the music. Now, what's really interesting about investing in that one was the fact that there was a scene after... uh, I hope our listeners know by this time I'm talking about Cabaret. Um, But anyway, um, there was a scene after Sally and Cliff get together... Um, at that time, there was a song called Roommates rather than Perfectly Marvelous. But then they went into the park. Uh, they went for a walk. Uh, this scene actually was in Boston. Uh, they went into a park, and they saw how terrible things were in, in Germany. If you know City on Fire and Sweeney Todd with the sheet and everybody behind it, that's what was going on. Prince had that idea 13 years earlier for Cabaret. And so you saw Hitler giving a speech, you know, but again, just a shadow, just a a silhouette. Um, A woman came up, it was like she was 20 feet tall uh, from the lighting, and said to Cliff, 
Um, I will do anything for money. I will do anything you want right now, right here in this park for money. But you have to give me money. But whatever you're, you, you, you're, and there's Sally standing right next to him. She doesn't care. I mean, she's, she's looking for, to get um, money any way she can. So it was a very powerful scene. Joel Gray played um, a guy in a wheelchair. You didn't know it was Joel Gray. Um, a guy in a wheelchair who was asking for money, um, you know, pretending to be an amputee. I mean, it was a powerful scene. And it was really the wow. scene that made me invest in Cabaret. And I'm much prouder of investing investing in cabaret than I was, uh, than I would have been uh, investing in MAME. Uh, MAME's terrific, but cabaret is a significant show. It's the missing link between the concept musical and the conventional musical. Uh And more to the point, it took a lot of balls to invest in cabaret that year because Breakfast at Tiffany's, Mary Tyler Moore, Richard Chamberlain, the guy who just finished writing the lyrics for Funny Girl and wrote good scores, Abe Burroughs, who directed How to Succeed in Guys and Dolls and wrote the books, and they, they, that was going to be that. Don't forget, it was the same season that Mike Nichols, the hottest director, was going to do his first musical with the people who just wrote Fiddler on the Roof, and you had Barbara Harris, so that had to be a hit. And there was David Merrick producing Mary Martin and Robert Preston and I Do, I Do, which was had to be a smash hit. You know, I mean, how many hits can there be in a season? And here was this show written by the guys who had written Floor of the Red Menace, which is an off and on score. There are a lot of wonderful things mm-hmm. in Florida, with a lot of strange things in Florida too. And that show was a big flop. And don't forget, Harold Prince was directing and he had never directed a hit. You know, he, Family Affair that he took over was a flop. Um, she Loves Me, which we all love dearly, but let's face it, did not make money. Um, not only that, there was uh, Baker Street that he directed, oh. and what did not work out. Superman, which he directed, did not work out. So, I mean, it really was quite a leap of faith to to invest in cabaret under those circumstances and especially with you know really no big names compared to the yeah. names that the other shows had and a real martin serious. preston barbara harris yeah. you know i mean yeah you know, so so it really took a lot and i'm very very proud of that that we knew enough in our youth that this was a special yeah. show and that this was really going to amount to something yeah. so and a, and a much darker show than, than yeah than they'd ever yeah, seen indeed. before i mean you know, really right I mean, you know i mean it yeah, it wasn't that long from Nazi Germany when you really think of it. I mean, uh, mm. uh, so uh, a lot of people, and you know, uh, the the audience at that time was pretty much New York Jewish, and yeah. would they embrace a show with uh, where swastikas would be on stage. You know, it, was, it really was risky, but I am very proud that we saw the worth in it, and mm-hmm. that I learned the experience from Mame and how to write a musical. Mm-hmm. So that was significant. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I love how you just see the potential in things. Most people look at all the negativity, and then mm. the fact that you yeah. can glean that this was going to be something powerful and important. I'm not sure there are any bad ideas. It really is in the execution. Um, I think Sondheim certainly has helped to teach us that because we wouldn't have expected... It's so interesting you look at some movies that um, talk about Broadway. I mean, for example, the movie Avanti talks about um, there's going a musical of the sinking of the Titanic. You know, it's going to be called Splash! Exclamation point. By the, by the way, the exclamation point joke is far overdone. I've actually done a study of this, and there aren't that many musicals We've, that use exclamation points. We were point. just talking no about kidding. it and yesterday, and during our, we were doing, recording mini-podcasts, and we, we were thinking, why? You know, because I said, well, Donnybrook, you so know. We're talking about Sherry, right? Sh- Sherry, yeah, so you know, we were talking about Sherry. And then, but we thought, what was, was it really Oklahoma, the first one? I mean, what, what, how did it get started? The first one it certainly was the one that everybody paid attention to, but there's no question that's an overdone uh, cliche, ah. and um, you know it's, it's something that really rankles me tremendously because it indicates the type of. Um, <sighs> 
well, knee-jerk reaction that Broadway musicals try to make themselves more exciting than they are, uh, and, and, and that's too bad. Uh, Lee Adams did a wonderful lyric for a musical called A Broadway Musical. Uh, it only lasted one night. I saw it three times. Um, and um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, it, it had a wonderful title song. Uh, have you ever heard it, the title song? I have not. I've heard songs from the show. I've never heard the title song. The title song's terrific, and it's 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 something like uh, the glorious sets, the nifty costumes, a Broadway musical, da 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 da, a Broadway musical. Anyway, and uh, the it, the delicious lyric I have to admit is it doesn't have one redeeming feature, a Broadway musical, but it ends with, but when it works. Forget the jerks who told you it wouldn't go because there's nothing like a Broadway show. Oh. And that used to be true. <laughs> so yeah. That's great. So, uh, and I'm very, uh, I'm very sorry that um, the show didn't do the right thing. So it was the type of thing where it was about a producer who uh, corrupted a straight play into a musical. And then the problem is in the second act, they want you to care about him. But at that point, he's such a buffoon, you can't care about him. So it, it, it was a problem book-wise, but um, there was a lot of good material. Um, you know, there, there used to be a, a theory that you could succeed if you had three showstoppers. And um, a Broadway musical did. It actually did. That song, the title song, there was a wonderful song that opened the second act um, called the 1938 Hot Chocolate Jazz Babies Review. And the concept of this was when the playwright went to the National Theater in Washington where his musical, his corrupted play was going to be trying out, that um, he, he ran to a guy uh, sweeping the stage. And it was played by Tiger Haynes, who had mm. uh, left the Wiz to do this show. And... Um, and he's talked about, you know, I used to be a star, and I was in the 1930, maybe 34, uh, Hot Chocolate Jazz Bay, and suddenly the stage came alive with this um, number um, that he, he replicated uh, in his mind, and he was part of it, and it was really quite wonderful. And then, after it was over, and the kid left, he looked at us and said, now, I, I never was a star, I, I never was part of it but at least I was there. And the tears just flowed from me because <laughs> I've been there too, yeah. you know, and, uh, and I know what that feels like. Yes, wouldn't it be nice to be on stage, as Ethel Berman used to say, if you could do what I do, you'd be up here. Yes, and I can't do what you do, and I'm down there. But being down there isn't such a bad place to be either. Oh. Oh. No, you're right. I love that. Yeah. And now we have questions for you. Okay. Um, you are the expert. Of musical theater. We'll see. Go on. So we feel that these answers from you are going to be the definitive answers, ah, and then we'll see. We'll all see. musical theater people can stop their debate yeah, yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah. All right? <laughs> or yeah. start it up. Or start it up. Or start it up. You can feel free to answer. You can feel free to pass, but the ball is now mm -hmm. in your court. Mm -hmm. uh, this book should be on the shelf of every musical theater lover. Which one that I think is the most yep. valuable? Um, I think Ethan Morden's The Best of Us All, and um, his books um, that deal with the decades of the musical theater, um, Make Believe, that deals with the 20s, Sing for Your Supper, which deals with the 30s, Beautiful Morning, which deals with the 40s, um, Coming Up Roses for the 50s. I just read that last week. Yep. Yeah, he's <laughs> again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, opening a Window for the 60s. For the 70s was um, One Last Kiss, um, One More Kiss, sorry. And um, then he did one um, for the rest of the um, century from... Uh, the 80s on, uh, which he called The Happiest Corpse I've Ever Seen, which, you know, <laughs> um, I wish he had chosen a different <laughs> title, not just because it's, it's negative, though I understand the negativity, believe me. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the thing was that um, 
every other one did come from a lyric from that era. In fact, I even did a, a column uh, saying here are some songs he might have chosen from them, including uh, the one from Day in Hollywood, Night in the Ukraine that Jerry Herman wrote. You know, maybe he should have called the book Just Go to the Movies. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, <laughs> but anyway, Ethan Morden, I think, is essential reading. Oh, and so uh, there are times, of course, when um, he, he shocks me, um, literally calling Zorba an evil piece of shit. Um, you know, is uh, he? That's that's, a that's specific. Yeah, that's yeah, like I'm, that's I'm real. Not, that's a I am stake not in the sand. Phrasing, um, but still, I think his perceptions are amazing, and and um, I do truly believe he's the best of us all. So anybody who's interested in this art form must read his books. I agree. Fabulous. Yeah. Your turn. Uh, who's your favorite orchestrator? Oh, this is interesting. I I, um, I remember vividly in 1967. Um, going down to Providence, Rhode Island to see the musical version of The Grass Harp. And um, at that time, it was really something because in Providence, Rhode Island, who would expect to see Barbara Baxley from She Loves Me and um, Carol Bruce from Do I Hear a Waltz and Carol Bryce from Saratoga uh, and Elaine Stritch um, from... We all know what she did. Anyway... um, so this show got terrible reviews, and I remember I was supposed to go with my friend that I mentioned earlier, uh, with whom I invested, and um, because the reviews were so bad, he said, listen, I'm not going. I am um, going to a Bacchus audition of Hallelujah Babies, so um, <laughs> we'll talk um, when you get... And I, I found a, a, a friend who was willing to go down with me, and I will never forget this, that we were lost and we were looking for directions, and I went into this drugstore, and my eyes met with a girl who was with a guy, and I'm telling you, it was an amazing connection. And she gave me directions like six times as if to say, take me away from this guy, you and I, you know we belong together, and I had to go to the show. And so I'm really angry because the show's got bad reviews and all this kind of stuff. Well, the overture begins, and I am telling you, the a moment it happened, I said, who did these orchestrations? They're phenomenal. And I look, and for the first time ever, I see the words Jonathan Tunick. Yeah, he did them there. He didn't continue with them as they went on. There are, the only songs that are his are the ones that were in Providence. Um, they had two other orchestrators come in, uh, because by that point, by 71, he was a big shot, and, he, and this was mm-hmm. a very... Um, it's lucky Grasshop got here at all, because uh, the budget was, I think, 170000 at a time when musicals were costing close to a million. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it was lucky it came in. But um, Jonathan Tunick, I really like. I would always be interested to see what Jonathan Tunick would have done if he had been on the scene for Anyone Can Whistle. Mm-hmm. And I think Don Walker's orchestrations for Anyone Can Whistle are phenomenal. Um, but another one I have to mention, too, is Eddie Sauter, who oh. I think is really quite mm-hmm. wonderful, who did um, The Apple Tree, 1776. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's pretty amazing as well. So those three come immediately yeah. to mind. And I know it's easy to mention Tunick, but I really do feel that the fact that um, I, I did know him when, so to speak, uh, makes a big difference. And I was so happy when he got Promises, Promises, because that was the next job that uh, of any significance that I know that he got. There are those who tell me that actually, even though he's not accredited with the orchestrations on the album, if you know the um, off-Broadway show that never got onto CD called All in Love, a musical of the rivals, um, the best place book says he did the orchestrations, and they're awfully good orchestrations. So, hmm. um, do you know All in Love? No, I do. Oh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite wonderful. It really is. All right, the leading man thinks he's Robert Goulet. All right, the leading lady thinks she's Julie Andrews, and they really sing in that style. But it's very good work, and the lyrics are exceptional. And ironically enough, the guy who wrote the book and lyrics wound up f- creating 
Mission Impossible. Well, Who'd expect that? You know, I mean, you know so uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but the, yeah, really, that's very that's far afield from the rivals, you know. So, <laughs> cool. so there's that. Um, the greatest overture to any musical is yeah. The, the conventional answer is always Gypsy. I go with Funny Girl. Um, I like the Funny Girl um, overture a great deal um, for a number of reasons. For one thing, you know, we have to admit that this shouldn't be held against Gypsy, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, the first two songs we hear in Gypsy um, in the overture were not written for Gypsy. They were songs that were written for other shows. I, again, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the end is the important result, but I, I, I do want to point that out. But um, Funny Girl, I think, is, is a much more exciting overture. And isn't it interesting that both those overtures only use songs songs sung by the women hmm. i find that very huh. interesting yeah yeah so uh um but there are many others that i like immeasurably that a lot of people don't know and uh goldilocks is one tenderloin is one that i'm I crazy i love about. goldilocks yeah it's, it's, it's very scores. yeah it really is it really is good another one i'll go to bat for um is cyrano uh, which i think is really oh. very dynamic and um but it's funny, you know, I remember seeing the Triad of Cyrano in Boston and being thrilled with the overture, and then when the show was unfolding, saying, where are the songs I heard in the overture? And they were there, but somehow they just didn't huh. land as much. But, uh, but I think that's really a, a quite wonderful overture as well. So those are, uh, those are the ones that come to mind immediately. But Funny who's Girl's your, my favorite. Who's your favorite critic? Oh, Walter Kerr, definitely. Walter is. Kerr. Yeah, because um, he, he gave that indulgence, and he knew how to make a show sound exciting. Mm-hmm. Or made you understand why it it wasn't successful. For example, his review of Happy Hunting, uh, he, he said, what kind of Merman show is it when sh- th- there's not one song that stops the show even once? Mm. Yeah, and he ended the review sa- by saying, but the roof is still on the majestic and that's not right. And, you know, that's a wonderful perception yeah. that, you know, that there were just no showstoppers for Merman and Happy Hunting. And that's what we associate Merman with. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it was really something not to have that situation. So, so I loved reading him. A lot of people said that he really wasn't that good when it came to reviewing musicals. I don't quite see that. Um, but I always enjoyed him, and he had style. And, you know, I admire all these guys who had to go back after the show immediately and write on typewriters oh, right. and, and, and pass them in. You know, I mean, that's amazing to me. And I have to say this, too. There have been times when I've seen shows that have made me angry. And I go home, I get a night's sleep. The next night, I, next morning, I shower. I'm not so mad anymore, and I'm a little more indulgent than I would have been if I had written the review right should, after yeah, the show. Yeah, and we should clarify for some of our younger listeners that traditionally a review did come out that after opening night, and the reviewers did go see the show opening night mm-hmm. and had that turnaround. Nowadays, the reviewers go during the preview mm-hmm. process, mm-hmm. and they have a couple days, yeah. as yeah. Peter was saying. Partly to, to because you need so many seats for the in, uh, producers and investors on opening <laughs> yeah. night, because there are so many of them now. <laughs> the day is going to come when they're going to announce the best musical, and the stage is going to collapse from all the producers <laughs> who go up there. It's just going to fall in. It has to happen, because there are just so many of them. Mm-hmm. There's so many. Yeah. So many. Yeah. If you were casting the Mac and Mabel revival, who's Mac, who's Mabel? I am terrible at casting. I never can do this ever. The only time I ever thought I had a good idea was many years ago when I thought Dana Ivey would be good in the prime of Miss Jean Brody, and I am done. It is just a skill I do not have, and I wish I did. My friend Jay Clark is amazing, who says, um, you know who would be good for blah, 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 and so He's always right. I just don't have that ability. So, But frankly, whoever you want to cast is fine with me because we should see another Mac and Mabel. Amen. 
Um, you know, it's it's such a wonderful score, and I have seen it a number of times. I'm amazed that I've seen it twice in England, two different productions, um, many years apart in England. The first one that was done that got the cast album, and then John Doyle did one some mm-hmm. years ago that um, was very reductive but very good. And um, so, um, yeah, I'll see Mac and Mabel anytime. But I'm sorry to let you down. I'm just terrible at casting. No, that we'll call Jay and he'll get an right. answer. That's right, sir. Jay'll solve it in no time at all. We'll yeah, I can't figure it Who's your uh, favorite golden age performer, male oh. and female? Okay, um, and uh, I guess we really can't count Streisand because, of course, um, she didn't stay with us, and I do hold that against her, I have to admit. So, um, so uh, ironically enough, I, I only saw The Great Ladies once. I only saw Mary Martin in I Do, I Do. I only saw Ethel Merman in The Revival of Annie Get Your Gun, which is an interesting story, too, because, again, I was still only learning about how tickets were sold in the sense that I was reading Variety and I saw that these are arbitrary figures, but that Annie Get Your Gun sold out at 80000 a week and they were taking in sixty. So I assumed that every performance was 75% full. I didn't know that on Tuesdays it was 40% full and on Saturdays. So anyway, this, this, um, it was, I was in Baltimore uh, visiting um, the woman who would become my girlfriend and we uh, went down to Washington to the National Theater and um, I went in to buy tickets and uh, they said, all we have is standing room. And um, I came out and I said to her, all they have is standing room. With a look in my eye saying, and if you fucking make me miss Ethel Merman, I will slit your throat right here. <laughs> and she, she looked scared to death and said, no, no, I'll, I'll stand. So anyway, it was the only time I ever saw Ethel Merman. I never saw Judy Holiday. I did see Beatrice Lilly in High Spirits. Oh, um, wow. But I have to say, you know, I don't know about Golden Age, but the people I always look forward to now seeing, I have to admit, include Donna Murphy, who I think is really sensational. I know she doesn't do very much, and I know she misses a lot of performances. But she's really, I look forward to any show that has Donna Murphy in it. And I'm very sorry she's not doing this war paint, for which I think she was mentioned. I know she's had terrible trouble. Her husband died and all that, and I'm sure she was taking care of him. And I think that may be why. I'm not saying, I never say what I say is true. I only tell you what I hear. I think it may be why she's not doing war paint, for which she was originally scheduled to do with Patti Lapone. I got off on the wrong foot with Patti Lapone. I saw her in The Baker's Wife in Boston, and there's all this talk about, oh, have you seen Jean Z. Baker's wife, she is so beautiful. And I can't say that um, Patti Lapone you know, has the music that makes me dance as a beauty. I mean, I don't, I don't, and I thought, wow, this lady is really miscast. So I never got on the Patti Lapone bandwagon. Um, and in fact, um, I, I did not see her in Evita, and I did not see her in Anything Goes. I literally went when the understudies were on. Huh. So, um, you know, so, uh, so she's not a particular favorite, though that's not the question uh, you asked by any stretch of any imagination. But for males, it's always so much harder. It really is because um, so much of musical theater is um, tilted, well, conventionally anyway, not necessarily now, but um, um, tilted towards uh, women. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly when I was growing up, you know, as, as Ethan Warden called, the big lady shows but um but yeah robert preston did have that magnetism and even in a show that wasn't a great show like ben franklin in paris i mean he gave it his all and i really regret that one time when he was staying at a hotel i was working at the front desk and he passed by that i didn't um talk to him because i'm told he was such a wonderful guy Mm. with fans and i bet we would have talked for a long time and he really would have appreciated you know somebody who had seen ben franklin in paris and And you know (laughs) yeah yeah so he was really marvelous and and so that was my um favorite male golden age poem and that's uh, unfortunately too obvious an answer but it's the best i can do no that's good for me um are we living in a new golden age of the american musical 
Yes and no. Um, we're certainly living in an age where people are more aware of what's going on in, in musical theater. And I know that certainly High School Musical and Glee has helped that along. Mm. However, um, I will sound very old-fashioned, and um, I will sound like an old man who, when I was a kid, used to say to me, Floridora, that was a show, not what they're producing today. <laughs> but... Um, but I'm afraid, you know, I, I am a person who, who likes um, wit in lyrics and craft in lyrics, and we don't, and we're getting shows now where M's rhyme with N's, which don't, and plurals rhyme with singular, which don't, and the, the lyrics aren't just as specific anymore. Um, I was on a panel once, and um, I was talking about the fact that it's really sad that, you know, Spider-Man is the type of show we're getting. And Elizabeth Vincentelli of The Post said, well, excuse me, but back in 1966, there was Superman. And, you know, you never think of the good answers until three days later and uh, so now i have the answer to that you know okay let's look at that superman opened to a review from stanley kaufman the time saying it was the best musical of the season spider-man opened to a ben brantley review saying it was one of the worst shows of all time (laughs) okay superman ran three months spider-man ran three years Mm -hmm. you know and uh, let's take a look at what lois lane sings in superman where she talks about how she wished she wasn't in love with superman um she wants a she's going to give him up because she wants a man with both feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. That's a great lyric, you know, because, of course, Superman flies. So give me a lyric to Spider-Man that's nearly as good as that, and you're not going to be able to. Um, I do find the specificity of lyrics and the, those wonderful punchlines we used to have um, not there anymore. So there are people who really come to Broadway thinking, all right, I'll write a Broadway musical. That'll be something I can do. And they really don't know how to do it. But if they have such big superstars, nobody can tell them anything. They really don't want to take advice. And again, I know I sound 605 years old, but still, I feel bad that um, that the musical theater today will do anything, A-N-Y-T-H-I-N-G, to get young people in the theater. And that means giving them stuff that appeals to them. When I was a kid, what I loved about musical theater was that it was sophisticated. Now that I'm sophisticated, I have to go to the theater and see children's shows, in essence. I mean, kids' material. And I really wish... I think what we're going through is a, a, a... an era not unlike what was happening 100 years ago. 100 years ago, there was a silly musical called The Princess Shows. They, they were innovative in their own way, but they were silly, and they were superficial, and they haven't lasted. And eventually somebody said, no, the musical theater has to grow up, and it sort of started with Showboat, though the lessons of Showboat weren't really learned in 1927. It wasn't until Oklahoma came around. Well, you know all this. But anyway, my point is that I have a feeling that long after I'm dead, somebody's going to say, it's time to stop these crummy musicals like Evil Dead. You know, I think that one of the worst things that's ever happened to musical theater are the so-bad-it's-good musicals. Um, <laughs> I I will admit that Little Shop of Horrors is excellent at what it does, but it opened the door, the floodgates, to these musicals that stink. Um, I'm not saying Little Shop stink. I'm not saying anything of the kind. But what I am saying is a lot of people uh, imitated Little Shop but don't have the um, abilities and talents that certainly Alan Menken and Howan Ashman did. So as a result, we have really a lot of bad shows. I have a lot of cast albums that people send me that will never get played, never, ever. Um, and um, and that's sad. And if I'm living in the past, well, there's a lot of glorious stuff in the past. Uh, the, I remember where I was in my bedroom when I got the cast album, the, the 1961 of Finian's Rainbow in here, when I can't fondle the hand that I'm fondle, I fondled the hand at hand. 
whoa, now that's <laughs> writing, you know, and nobody's doing that today. Um, the only person close to it, I think, who really, um, both of them for that matter, who write in the musical theater tradition that I like are Aaron's and Flaherty. Yep. And, yeah. um, we were you? Yeah. Yesterday, so I think, I think they're terrific. And, um, I wish them well in their new show, uh, Anastasia. And, uh, I find a lot of work and uh, worth in everything they do. Um, and I went to see Rocky three times and even paid twice. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, greater love, no man hath, you know, so, um, <laughs> than to do that. So it was really very significant to me to, uh, to go and see it again. And I cried like a baby and I responded to what was going on. And I think they really improved the movie tremendously. Uh-huh. I know it won an Oscar, but I'm telling you, there are things in it that are so smart. And I, uh, I'll, I'll certainly applaud the book writer too, but, um, I'm very, very enthusiastic about them. And so whatever they're doing, I'm, I'm interested in, but the people who come from another world, who come from the pop world and, um, really, I, I wish they'd go to the BMI workshop and, and see what's going on there and listen. But a lot of these people, you can't tell anything because they're, they're superstars. Yeah, hubris. <laughs> and you are a superstar in your own right. God love you. You are. You really are. I, I can't tell you how much you've done for myself and for Kevin, yeah. and, and we're speaking for thousands Countless upon people, thousands yeah. of other people out there wow. Yeah, who can't get to this city and live through Broadway and live through the American musical through yeah. your words. Yeah. Well, that's very gracious for you to say. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I hope that's true. You know, that's that's very nice. I think it you is. Know, I, um, I uh, there are times when I, I feel like um, John Adams singing "Is anybody there?" I have no idea if anybody's paying attention to what I'm doing uh, yeah. whatsoever. But every now and then, you know, I do I do hear something like this. So um, it's it's nice of you to say it too. You're there. Oh, thank you. We're yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. We're there. Yeah, God love you. Indeed. Awesome. Uh, Peter, thank you so much. Thanks I hope you'll me. join us again sometime. Yeah. Anytime. Awesome. You, Anytime at all. Thank Bye. you so much. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye. Join us next week when Golden Age star Karen Morrow drops by behind the curtain. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.